Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to The Grand Inquisitor by Rev. Peter Yonker. Let's ask for a blessing on the reading and the preaching of God's Word. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you for gathering this church family here again tonight. And we're gathered here hungry and eager to partake of your bread. Lord, feed us with your manna, feed us with your holy word. Send your spirit on my preaching and all our listening so that our hearts and souls and minds may be strengthened for service to you and your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Bible reading tonight is from Job chapter 9, and I'm just going to say a couple of things before I read it. Um, I think this is an evening service crowd, so most of you know very well the story of Job. Job is a righteous, just, good, godly man whose life is suddenly turned completely upside down. He loses his business, he loses his flocks, his children are killed, his wife leaves him, and then he loses his health, and Job ends up sitting on an ash heap covered in sores. His friends come to comfort him, which works out okay until they open their mouths. And, and it's just Job is in this terrible place, and most of Job is about him imploring the heavens about what's going on. And, and I want to read Job 9 tonight because I think well, even those of us evening service people who know Job, you can forget how raw and how ferocious Job's complaint really is. Listen to these words. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wish to dispute with him, they could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it. He overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades, the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab have cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm. He would multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. 
Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is what I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? This too is the word of the Lord. Does it get any angrier than that? I don't know if you, you're, I mean, I go through it one time, and it's maybe hard to catch it, but there are so many accusations against God here, so many things that Job says directly against God. Let me go back and just rehash some of the things, some of the claims Job makes about God. God, Job says, is capricious. He's unpredictable. You never know when he'll burst out in anger. Verse 5, he moves the mountains without their knowing it. He overturns them in his anger. You never know how he's going to react. Unpredictable. God is also remote, says Job. Sure, he's powerful. He puts the stars in the heavens and he does all these wondrous things. But, you know, what difference does that make to me? I don't sense him. Verse 11, when he passes by me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I do not perceive him. I don't have a sense of his presence in my life, says Job. God is a terrible temper, says Job. He's like an unstable father who loses his temper quickly. Verse 13, God does not restrain his anger. This is the opposite, right, of Psalm 103. Psalm 103, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Job says the opposite. God does not restrain his anger, and he abounds in destruction. Verse 24, Job says that God is unjust. That not only does he fail to give justice to those who are oppressed, he subverts their justice. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? God gets in the way of justice. And finally, and most brazenly, verse 23, Job says that God mocks the suffering of the innocent. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent, says Job. So God is like, says Job, the playground bully who knocks someone over, and when that person cries, mocks the person who's crying. Wow. That's quite a list of accusations in one chapter of Scripture. If you had a friend or a family member who was talking like that about God, would you feel like that person was blaspheming? Would you feel like that person had completely lost their faith? Job really, really lets it fly. He stands in the middle of his suffering and he howls at God, howls his questions and his accusations. And he's not alone. Most people who've gone through terrible times, they may not say all this stuff out loud, but in their mind and in their hearts, they've wondered many of the things that Job says. When I think of a more modern version of Job's complaint, I think of the book, the classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, and I think particularly of the chapter, The Grand Inquisitor. 
Now, I know most of you have not read the Brothers Karamazov, and, and maybe those of you who have don't remember it. So let me remind you what that chapter is about. It's a long conversation about the nature of suffering between Ivan Karamazov, one of the brothers, and Alexei Karamazov. Ivan is a cynic and probably an atheist. Alexei is someone who loves Jesus with all his heart and wants to be a monk. And Ivan is the older brother, and he comes to his younger brother, and he wants to poke holes in his brother's, what he feels like is Alexei's naive faith. And so he challenges him with the evils of this world. He makes accusations against God, and what he brings up in particular is the suffering of children. He goes through this long litany of items from the news of the abuse of children, of the torture of children, of children being murdered slowly in front of their parents, just atrocious stuff. And if you, if you know anything about the book, if you study it, you realize that Dostoevsky puts in Ivan's mouth, those accusations he puts in Ivan's mouth are real stories. He went through the news of his time and found real horrors committed against children and put them in Ivan's mouths as an accusation against God. And they're things so horrific that I do not feel comfortable telling you them in a church. After pointing to these horrors, Ivan says to Alexei, even if God at the end of the story makes everything all right in the end, even if God somehow brings a happy ending to this whole story at the end of time, I do not want to live with a God who would allow these children to suffer. If, if that suffering of those children is part of that plan, I reject that plan. I return my ticket, is the language he says in the book. I don't want to get on the Jesus train. I don't want my ticket to the kingdom of heaven. If that kind of suffering is part of God's plan, I return my ticket. I don't want any part of it. Dostoevsky was a devout Christian. But when you read that chapter, the accusations in it pierce you. Right? you they put you in a place like, what do I say? What, what should I say to this, this terrible suffering? And yet, in Job 9, we have something as scathing in Scripture. We have something as scathing and as, as, as hard as anything that ever came out of Ivan Karamazov's mouth. So what do we say to Job's accusations here? What do we say to the Ivan Karamazovs of this world? First of all, I think the first thing we say is it's amazing what Scripture will allow to appear on its pages. It's amazing what God will allow to go in his book. This is not just lament, right? This is not just God saying, this is not just a psalmist saying, where are you, Lord? This is an accusation where someone says, Lord, you are nasty. This is as bad as it gets, right? And yet here it is in scripture. And there's something comforting about that. If you have someone in your family, if you have someone in your life who you feel has strayed so far from God, and has completely turned his back or her back, and who said things about God that make you think that she's completely lost her faith, the words of Job 9 are at least a comfort and a hope that maybe God's arms are strong enough to bring someone back who speaks of God like they're a flaming atheist. That God is able to tolerate terrible, terrible accusations and still keep reaching out for the children he loves. That's one thing we can say about these words. 
And the second thing we can say about these words, and maybe even more amazing, is not only do these accusations appear in Scripture, but in some way, God approves of Job's words in Job 9. At the end of the story, Job 42, verse 17, after the friends have all spoken and after the story is done, God speaks up and says to the friends, you have not spoken of me what is right like my servant Job has. Job has spoken rightly of me, says the Lord, but you have not. Job has spoken rightly of me. After reading Job 9, in what sense can we possibly understand that Job has spoken rightly of God? Job has spoken rightly of God in this sense, not in the content of his speech. God is not an impressive. God is not unjust. God is not a playground bully. The content of what Job says is not true. So God, Job has not spoken rightly in that sense. But Job has spoken rightly in that he is not willing to take refuge in the easy answer of his friends. His friends want Job to call his chaos justice, and Job refuses. Job refuses to allow anyone to say that what's happening to him is anything other than unjust and evil. That's exactly where his friends fall down. In their speeches, when you read them, they go through great lengths trying to explain how what is happening to Job must actually be just, must actually be good. Either you sinned, Job, or, or maybe it was your kids, but, but God is good. There's no way that what's happening to you is not just. I know this feels like chaos, Job, but it's really justice. I know it seems like you're sitting on an ash heap. It's really a flower garden. I know this all seems wrong, but trust me, God is in his heaven and everything that's happening in your life is exactly right, is the argument of the friends. And Job refuses to have it. He says, no, it's not right. It's chaos. It's unjust. It's wrong. It reminds us that explaining suffering, explaining the suffering of people, explaining the suffering of the world is always a dangerous thing. Remember the tsunami in Southeast Asia in 2004, happened right after Christmas. Something like 225,000 people died. I think for most of us, it was a good example of this chaotic event where we, we, we cried out like Job and said, what's going on? How do we explain this? And most of us had no explanation. But there were, if you remember, those who did have explanations. And they said things like, well, this happened to those people because they are not godly. They're not Christians. That's why God let this happen. Or these things happen because of the ungodliness in Thailand. There's all sorts of prostitution in that country. This is punishment for the immorality. But do you see what happens when you, when you take that road? First, you shut down your compassion. You don't have to care for them anymore because it was their fault. And second of all, you've just called something chaotic good. You've just said, and this is so dangerous, that this event in which women and children and innocent people were swept under rubble and left to die was somehow the good and proper will and purpose and holiness of God. In their zeal to have explanations for what's happening around them, the friends make an idol of their explanations. I don't think it's too much to say that one of the central messages of the book of Job is beware of trying to explain too much in this world.
And I think that's shown by the fact that at the end of the day, God is more upset with the easy explanations of the friends than he is with the blistering accusations of Job. God would rather have our blistering accusations than our two easy answers. In the context of Job, that's what we see. Of course, the friends are not the only one to respond to Job's speech. In the end, God himself responds, but he doesn't respond again with an easy explanation. With any explanation, God responds, and this is hard because this is the way God does things, with a display of his power. He comes in the whirlwind and reaffirms that he is all-powerful in this world. With a reaffirmation of his justice, I do care about justice, Job, whatever you may think, and with a display of his care. I am here. I am your God. I will not let you go. Not an explanation, but power, justice, and care. And even though it doesn't help Job explain why this happened to him, it's enough for Job, and he lives with it. For us, there is also another response to Job's accusations. Later, God responds to Job by sending his one and only son. Jesus comes to Job and to all of us who know his trouble and know what it is to sit on the ash heap, and Jesus comes and he sits on the ash heap right beside Job. Close enough that Job can shout all his accusations and we can shout all our accusations right at him, right in his face. We can spit in his face if we want. Hit him. Smash a crown of thorns down on his head if we want. We can seize hold of him and nail him to the wall or a cross if we'd prefer. God responds by sending his son to sit beside us on the ash heap and allowing all of us to pour out our anger and our frustration on him and he drinks it in and he overcomes it in his resurrection and returns it with love and grace and hope. Again, it's not an explanation of the individual things that happen to us, but it's a sign in the midst of our struggle that the struggle is not the final end and that there's a joy that is stronger than all of our pain. And it reminds us how we might respond in the middle of the storm. Explanations are never a really good response to evil. If you've read the, uh, the brothers Karamazov, I wonder if you remember how Ivan ends up responding to his brother, excuse me, how Alexei ends up responding to his brother. So I, Ivan pours out all this cynicism, pours out all these accusations, and Alexei, the young monk, listens to them all, and he weeps. And when he's done, he doesn't say anything, he doesn't make a philosophical argument. Instead, he walks over to his brother and hugs him and gives him a kiss. And Ivan is undone by that. And he says this. It doesn't change him. It doesn't change his cynicism. But it is a sign of hope in the middle of his cynicism. This is what Ivan says. If I love anything in this world, I shall love only remembering you. It's enough for me that you are here somewhere and I shall not stop wanting to live. It doesn't change Ivan's mind yet. But it's enough hope, it's enough love to keep Ivan going and to keep him hoping. Sometimes that's the best we can do for people who are really struggling. Thomas Lynch, 
is a funeral director, famous funeral director from Midland, Michigan. He's written a lot of books about being a funeral director. And a few years back, he came to Calvin Seminary to talk about what a funeral is and what a good funeral is. And uh, during the question and answer period, someone asked him, what's the best funeral you've ever been to? And Lynch answered by saying, uh, talking about a, telling the story of a, a funeral of a 60-year-old man who'd lived an absolutely dissolute life. This man had left his family in his 40s and fallen into alcoholism and fallen into depression and had just made a, a total wreck of his life and died at 60. And here he was doing the funeral and all his children were and the people who used to love him were sitting there in the congregation and this young pastor got up front and Lynch was looking at this young pastor and saying, what is this young kid going to say about this man's 60 years and their unholy mess. And this is what the young minister did. He got up, he stood beside the casket. He said, I don't know what to say about Bob. I have no explanation for his life. And the best I can say is this, and he took out his harmonica and he started playing just as I am without one plea. Just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Lynch said it was just about perfect. Not an explanation, but a sign of hope and a sign of grace in the middle of a storm. I pray that my life and your life will be such a sign that as you go out into the storm, your life may be a sign of grace and a sign of resurrection in the midst of the troubles of this world. Amen. Lord, you know um, that there are people here who are facing struggles and worries that are nearly as hard as those of Job. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of your word that you do not leave us alone in our struggles, but you come right beside us and you struggle with us and that you surround us with your love, and that you point us ahead to a light that cannot be shaken. Lord, we pray that um, we, may, we may know that grace for our own struggles and for our own hearts and for our own life, but we also pray, Lord, that we may be that sign and that joy for those around us who are also struggling. Hear our prayer, Lord. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.